Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. A new series today called Zealous for Good Works. And just to let you uh, peek behind the curtain a little bit about how we do our uh, sermons here is for the most part, about 70% of the time, 80% of the time, we are going through uh, books of the Bible. We just finished the book of Philippians last week, and uh, we believe that going passage by passage through the Scriptures is the way that God intended us to do it. It's also good to slow down uh, every now and then, so about 20 or 30 percent of the time, we, we look at the themes of Scripture. We look at certain uh, theological topics. We also pause for certain times of the year, like Advent um, and such, so that we can focus on particular themes. We can see uh, the forest, not just the individual trees. And for this series, we're going to be looking for the next six weeks uh, at the theme of good works in the Scriptures and, that, and the things that we are called to be zealous about. The word zealous can have a positive meaning or it can have a negative meaning. When somebody is zealous about something, uh, it sometimes means that they're over the top about it or they're, they're too committed to it. But oftentimes, zealousness just means an eagerness or an enthusiasm. And actually, in the Scripture, there, there is that, that both positive and negative meaning. But we're going to be looking at the positive uses. What are the things that we as Christians are called to be eager about, zealous for, enthusiastic about. And the way we're organizing this is just looking at a couple of words. I won't tell you what those words are. They're Greek words, but there's really two words in the Scriptures that mean zealousness or eagerness. And the first one is used in the passage today. Every week we're going to be looking at a passage that uses one of those two words. And the word that is used here is to be zealous, verse 14 says, for good works. So each week we'll be looking at what we are to be zealous for. Before we dive into Titus this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask for His help in prayer. God, we believe that You are present by Your Holy Spirit. That when your word is read, preached, it is effective. It does not return void. It does what it sets out to do. And so I pray that today would be no exception. As we come to your word and wrestle with what it means to be zealous for the things that you want us to be zealous for, I pray that we would be challenged, but that we would also be comforted to know that whatever we are called to be zealous for, you yourself in your Son, Jesus Christ, will equip us for that good work. That you will be with us even to the end of the age as you've promised. 
and that outside of you we can do nothing. But I pray that you would equip us to work with all of your energy, that we would be energized by the truth and would seek out good works. So I pray for your blessing on this whole series and for this morning as we look at your word in Titus, that you would be near to us and draw our attention to where you want us to look. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one of the, the, the greatest movies, certainly, of, of my childhood uh, would have been the Peter Pan story, Hook. I know you've seen Hook. You've got to have seen Hook. If you haven't, we've got to talk after the service. But it's a wonderful movie. We just watched it a few months ago as a family as well. Uh, Robin Williams uh, plays Peter Pan. And, um, and the, the story is, if you haven't seen it, or if you need to be reminded, is that Peter has to become Pan again. Peter Pan has grown up. He's become an attorney, a successful uh, you know, businessman, or whatever it is that he is, and he is no longer remembering that he is Peter Pan, and he, never, he grew up. He, he left Neverland, and now, through a series of events, he finds himself back in Neverland, and he has to find his identity as Pan again. You remember the tests of Peter Pan's identity. There's, a, there's three really denunciations, I guess we could call them, that the lost boys, uh, especially Rufio, uh, makes against Peter Pan as he's become this older, kind of overweight businessman. Instead of being Peter Pan, he says three things. You are not Pan because you cannot fly, you can't fight, and you can't crow. So, being Peter Pan means specific things. It's a specific kind of calling. And without those things, he can't be Pan the man, right? He can't be what he was meant to be. So, the story, of course, is that he has to rediscover this. He rediscovers who he is. He remembers his time in Neverland. He gets back in touch with it. And I want you to imagine that that would be the end of the movie. Like, what if when he discovered that he really is the Peter Pan that they say he is, what if that was the closing scene of the movie? He realizes who he is. He's gotten back in touch. Is that the happy ending that we would look for? Of course not. Because it's not just about remembering who he is. It's also about being who he is, acting out who he is. So in this rediscovery of his identity, he then learns how to fly again. He then picks up the sword and learns how to fight again. And as they ask him, you can fly, you can fight, and you can, and he lets out a big crow because now he is Peter Pan again. The three parts of his identity are restored back to the way they should be. And now he can go and fight Captain James Hook. And now he can go rescue Maggie, his daughter, and Jack, his son. It's not enough, in other words, for him to be Peter Pan. He needs to act like Peter Pan. He needs to live out that specific calling on his life. Well, as we enter into this new series, what I want us to see is that it is not enough for us to identify 
Just to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. Of course, that is extremely important to discover who we are, to see who we are in Christ. But what I want to emphasize in this series and this morning is that it's also a calling to a specific set of actions. The Bible calls us to be transformed, to pursue good works. Salvation is not just an initiation into a status of being. It is a specific calling that we're called to. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we emphasize just our own status, just who we are. And that's, that's a good thing to return to. Peter Pan couldn't act like Peter Pan until he realized who he was. That is necessary. That we know that we are in Christ and that we're secure in Him. But it's also necessary that we then let the plot continue. That we not drift from our specific calling as Christians. Here's what I want us to see. God saved us in order to give us a specific calling. God saved us so that we would have a specific calling. And life is much more adventurous, much more interesting, much more meaningful when we emphasize the calling that God has placed on us. So what is this specific calling? I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But first, let me establish the first part of that main point. God saved us. God saved us in order to give us a specific calling. God saves us. Look at verse 11 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All right, so at verse 11, we begin by affirming what we do every single week. I hope this is not a new message to you if this is your church home. But if it is not, I hope that it is a new message to you to hear it perhaps for the first time that God Himself is the author of salvation. It's God who saves us. He has appeared bringing salvation. This is the good news. It's good news because you are not and you have not ever been and will never be saved by doing good works. You are saved by God, but specifically by His appearings. You see this twice in this small passage. This idea of the appearing comes. For the grace of God has appeared. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There's two appearings. The word there is related to the word epiphany. Like when we get an epiphany, there's an idea that appears to us. And something has appeared onto the scene twice. Or once it has appeared and once it is looking forward to an appearing again. And what is that appearing? It is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And both of those appearings are saving events. You see? He says in verse 11, He has appeared bringing salvation. And then later in verse 13, He says, the appearing, of our the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearings of Jesus is what saves us. There's, there's kind of a, a bookend there. The first appearing. That is when Jesus came into the world and our blessed hope, which is this 
this appearing in the future. And we live in the times between those two bookends. We live in that space. And it is in that space that we are saved by the appearing, the first appearing of Jesus, believing that Jesus Christ came. He appeared here on earth, took on flesh, and He died for us. And we also were saved by our hope in the future appearing of Jesus. But the point this morning is this, who is the author of salvation? It is God Himself, God alone in Christ Jesus, not our good works. Ephesians chapter 2, famous passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not a result of works. Do you hear? God is the one who saves us. Salvation is not based on our works. However, that's just the first part of what, Peter, what Titus says to us. God did save us, but He saved us for a specific calling. Not just from something. He saved us for something. And in fact, not unlike Peter Pan, we have a threefold calling. It's not to fly and fight and crow, okay? But we have three things that Titus calls us to pursue, okay? The first one is this. We have a specific training program called godliness. This is the first good works that we are called to do. Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is our specific training program. This trains us. The word there is just discipline. This disciplines us towards what God wants us to be. And there's two parts to the discipline. Two parts. And there's always two parts to growing in grace and righteousness. The first is saying no to some things. And the second is saying yes to some other things. To renounce or denounce some things. And then to live into other things. We say no first. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce, refuse to acknowledge the power of ungodliness and worldly passions. The, uh, the early church father, Chrysostom, famous preacher of the early church, he said this, see here, talking about this verse, the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying. Denying implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion. We are called to deny, to renounce ungodliness, which is all the things that are outside of God's good purposes. And we're called to renounce worldly passions, which is the things that cause our attention to shift away from God and to focus on our hope being the here and now, the things that we can obtain here, the pleasures and the, uh, the accomplishments or wherever it may be. And then he says, we have to say yes to some things. It's not just saying no. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, 
better translated here, to begin to live. It's not, it's not perfection that we're after. It's the, it's the change of a focus to begin to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's three attributes there of saying yes. Self-controlled, justice or uprightness, and godliness. And that threefold dimension of what we say yes to really relates to the three dimensions of where we're orienting our good works. The self, self-controlled. Others, doing right and justice for other people. And godliness, our orientation towards God Himself. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We say yes to the dimensions of righteousness of the self towards others and towards God. This is our training regimen in this present age. He says, look, in the present age, and that implies to me that this is going to be hard, that no matter what time in history you live, we live in a moment right now where it's going to be going against the grain to be godly. But that, that living differently is the, the first calling of the Christian, a specific calling God saved us so that we would be godly. And it's always a walking away from and walking towards something. This is the way the Scriptures so often speak about it. Let me give you another example. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee youthful passions. You see the one direction, run away. And pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee from this direction, and run towards this. Say no. Say yes. Another example, Ephesians 4. Put off the old self. Put on the new self, Paul says. This is our specific calling. Now, look at verse 15 with me. (laughs) Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. (laughs) All right? This is my permission to treat the witness as hostile for a second, okay? I'm called to exhort and rebuke you this morning because we need to see this. We need to actually put our noses into this and see. I've got to tell you that personal godliness is not optional for the Christian life. It's not optional Christianity does not consist of walking down an aisle or just saying a prayer and then returning to the same life that you lived before or whatever your preferences are. When you become a Christian, you are invited into a specific discipline, a training regimen towards godliness in the present age. Walking away from ungodliness and worldly passions, walking towards self-control and godliness. This is our calling to stop doing things and to start doing things. And I want to say this morning that this is not to the person who's feeling weak this morning. We're not talking about weakness. We're not talking about frailty. I mean, we just sang about it earlier. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. God knows 
our frame, the Scripture says. He knows that we are dust. I'm not speaking to you this morning if you are feeling crushed by the weight of, of your own sin and you feel like God could never love you or anything like that. To you, salvation appears in the coming of Jesus Christ who has died for you. We are always going to struggle with sin. We're always going to struggle with godliness. This is always going to be the case. I'm speaking rather to those of us who need to wake up because we're lazy in godliness. We're not participating in the training regimen that God himself gives us. What ungodliness or worldly passions have you not renounced? What are the things that you've become comfortable with? You're okay with them. You've made peace with the fact that lust is an everyday part of your reality. You've made peace with the fact that you're gossip and, and there, there are, uh, you'll just like talking about other people and you just decide that that's just the way it's going to be. Where have you said, I'm just going to make peace with this? We need to see. Jesus did not save us so that we could be ungodly and passionate for the things of the world. He saved us for the purpose of godliness. We have a specific training program. It's called godliness. Secondly, we have a specific hope. Jesus' return. This is our specific hope. It is true that Christians are called to live lives that have a future bent, that have a blessed hope in the future. Look at verse 13 with me waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope, the second coming of Jesus. So while we're training for godliness, we are to be um, focused on, on being transformed into His image, but we're also waiting for the full and final transformation. This project is not on our shoulders completely. We're not called to make ourselves and the whole world just instantly better by our own faithfulness. No, our blessed hope is in the returning of Jesus. This God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he says. Now, I think this is perhaps the clearest statement in all of Scripture on the deity of Christ. The God and Savior our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's so clear that some people will say that, that really what's in view here is not our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but our God, just God the Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And some will say that really this is two persons that are appearing here. I don't think that's true for multiple reasons. Two of the strongest reasons are this. One is kind of technical. I won't get into the details of it, but there's, there's a missing a, a, an article there, a, a type of a part of the language that would then say that this is two separate beings. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, there's nowhere else in the Scripture that the coming of God at the end of time is, a, is attributed to the Father, the appearing of the Father. No, the appearing, that word, the epiphany, is always about Jesus Christ the Son. And so here, I think it's best for us to see the appearing of our great God and Savior, one person, Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope. And this is really one of the best ways 
to distinguish our hope as Christians from the rest of the world. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling because the person that I know who doesn't follow after Christ seems to be more moral than me. You ever had that feeling? I remember I had a friend in, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, when I was going to college there. His name was Nick, and he was just an angel of a person. Like, he was so kind, so forgiving, and, 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 and so lost. He didn't know, he didn't follow after God. Why is that the case? Well, we, we all start in different places. We all, uh, you know, begin in different spots when, when God appears to us. But here's a better test and a more sure hope that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Here's a better test to ask, what is your hope? Not how much godliness have you achieved. Not how much moral capability do you have. But what is your hope for the world? What do you believe will happen in the future that can be guaranteed and lived for and hoped in? And for the Christian, the surest mark is this. Our blessed hope is the return of Jesus and nothing else so that he restores the whole world. This is our specific calling to be godly people who then wait for the second coming of Jesus. We have a third identity marker. We have a specific job. Good works. While we are here, we are called to good works. Look at verse 14 with me. Who gave himself, this God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you notice in that verse that Jesus does something for us And he does something for himself. For us, look what he says. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's salvation. That's, well, it's called the atonement, right? That he gave himself for us in our place condemned Christ stood. This is the glorious gospel that we started out with. God saved us. Jesus came to give himself for us. And at the same time, when he's doing something for us, he's doing something for himself. Gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God is and always has been creating a people that show His glory to the world. And what does that glory look like? It looks like goodness. It looks like good works. He's using here... uh, Paul who's writing this to Titus is using language from the Old Testament. He's using Exodus 19 where we're told that God's people, Israel, are His treasured possession. His chosen people. The one that He selected from among the nations. I want you to be this special people for Me. And the same language is being used here. I want you, church, to be this treasured possession. This chosen people. 
This is what God is always doing. He always wanted a people to be a, a witness to the nations by their holiness. He wanted a city on a hill that could be seen from all around. He wanted a light for the darkness. He wanted a salt for the earth. These images from the Scriptures that tell us that we are called distinctly to have a certain life before others. This is what God calls us to a job to be zealous for. Zealous for good works. Enthusiastic for good works. What are these good works? Well, that's what these next six weeks are about. We're looking through the Scriptures and seeing everything that God calls us to, to be enthusiastic towards. Serving others. Becoming righteous, as we've said here, and godly. Caring for the poor. Being merciful. Being generous. All of God's commands is what it means to do good works as a result of the salvation that God has already accomplished for us. He calls us to be a specific type of people. And in doing this, we rise above many of the accusations that are leveled against Christians. What are some of the accusations? Some would say, you Christians, you're always clinging to the past. You, you believe in a dead letter of a law. You believe in all this stuff that's, that's ancient. An ancient history. What's the relevance for my life? And then a, a completely other accusation that often comes is, you Christians are too future-oriented. All you're doing, you know, um, you're just providing an opiate for the masses. There's just some kind of, uh, just wait for heaven. Uh, it doesn't matter what your conditions are right now. What matters is that you get to heaven when you die. And that's, that's a kind of drug to people to try to get them to forget their circumstances. What do we say to those two accusations that we're just obsessed with the past and just obsessed with the future? What we say is this. Yes, we cherish the past. That's our heritage. Yes, we look forward to the future. That's our hope. Remember we already said the blessed coming of Jesus? It's our hope. But I've got to correct you. Because none of that means that we don't care about what matters right now. Good works matter right now. They are fruits of righteousness that will one day be the whole restored creation. What we do now is what God is, is a light, is a salt, is a witness to what will be. And it's what God uses to make it be. It matters now. Let me give you an old image as we close. Um, read this this week. In 1880, uh, there was a guy named uh, Canon Aitken, a British guy who wrote a book called The School of Grace. It's a 150-year-old book. And he described the two appearings of Christ this way. Remember I said God has appeared first bringing salvation, and we wait for the blessed hope of the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And he said in this old book, think of it this way. You're in a building with two opposite windows right across from each other, two windows to the outside, and you are standing between. For us this morning, I could say, imagine that the two windows are at this side of the church and on that side. Because one day, I hope that we can knock this out and let some natural light in from over here. All right, we don't have money in the ABLE project right now. But... If you want to write a check today, that's fine. We can get it done. But 
Imagine there's a window up there letting in light. And there's, a, and there's another window. This is the west. And that's the east. And he said, picture the two comings of Christ like you're in between. A window. Two windows. And to the west, we have the fading sun where the sun sets. And that, that is Christ's death. We are still witnessing in a sense what the Scriptures tell us, the the fading light of Jesus' life which accomplished salvation for us. And he says at the same time, we have the the beginnings of morning light. The sun hasn't risen yet in the east. You know, all of our gravestones are directed towards the east, the rising of the sun. It's like the picture of Jesus returning. And he says, to the east there's the beginnings of light, but the sun hasn't risen yet. And in those two places where the sun sets and where the sun is about to rise, that's where Christians live, where we are the church, literally in this building. This is where we live. And he says, it's in that sunset and in that sunrise that we have enough light. Light for what? For the good works that God in Christ has set aside for us to do, to see all that we're called to do. You know that eagerness that you have when you're outside working in your yard and the sun is setting and you really want to finish something before the sun goes down. Or perhaps here in Arizona when you're get up early so that you can beat the heat. You don't want the sun to rise too early before you get all the work done. We conserve our light. We try to work hard. We are eager. We are zealous to get the work done in the fading light and in the gaining light. That's exactly the eagerness that we're called to here in this age, this present age where God has called us, between the two windows where there is enough light. It's not as though we are causing the light to come. We don't know when Jesus will come. We don't know when our blessed hope will happen. But in the meantime, He calls us to use the light we have for the good works that He's called us to do. Our hope, our hope is in the future coming of Jesus. Our hope is not in our calling. Our hope is squarely in God who saves us. Our hope is in our calling. Is not in our calling, but is in Jesus' coming. But our calling is important. He saved us for our calling. He saved us so that we would look at what is here and now, the good works that he has in advance prepared for us to do. Let's pray.